but the context of our society and our culture, the environment that our clients are trying to recover in, we can't ignore that. And we bring it into the room. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, it's February, and a lot of the New Year's resolutions and ads and products and pills and potions and powders that are promoted to people early in the year may be fading a little bit. However, as Dr. Jenny Copeland, who's our guest today, talks about the environment that our clients are trying to recover in is something that we can't ignore. So listen in today because Dr. Copeland works at a community mental health center, sees a large variety of mental health diagnoses and conditions. And they may be among the first in the country to be doing providing care for their clients who don't have insurance in this type of a way with Reconnect Eating Disorder Center. They provide quality evidence-based compassionate treatment for people without insurance. So she talks about the therapy extenders that they use and case managers, how our bodies have meaning in the room, and then really great description of privilege and what that means and how we show up in the room, but what a privileged body means, what a privileged lifestyle means, and how we have to address that. So for therapists using RODBT, she describes what that is, and that has one of her favorite modalities to use with clients with eating disorders. So One big takeaway is trusting intuition and trusting my people. She gushes about her team, and she's created that team along with a great group of people, but also just like finding those people. And I'm going to give a shout out to the Body You program through the Missouri Eating Disorders Council. Instagram is at Body You the letter U, B-O-D-Y-U-P-R-O-G-R-A-M, which is in the show notes. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I have a new account that's professional. And it is beth.herald.cedss for Certified Eating Disorder Specialist and Supervisor. And I hope to see you there. Welcome, Dr. Jenny Copeland. We are really excited to have you here with us. Thank you for for having me. Yes, super excited, especially to have another fellow Missourian on the call. We always love that. Okay, Dr. Copeland, just to get things going here, mountains or beach? Definitely a beach person. That's the only way it feels like a vacation for me, actually, is if water is involved in some way. But I will say that one of the gifts of COVID through the pandemic for me has been kind of those forced staycations. And I've been able to explore the nature around here. We actually have some really cool things here in Joplin. And I've been able to spend more time on that. So now that feels really relaxing to me as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. There are, there really are so many 
things in Missouri, sometimes it's underrated, but like the Ozark area, Haha Tonka, so mm-hmm. many fun things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Breakfast or dinner? Mm. You know, I think it's mood dependent and I feel like I'm being a little bit extra with this, but it depends on how I'm feeling. I, when it, things are really rough and we're stressed, my husband and I will go to breakfast kind of foods for dinner because it feels quick and easy, but also satisfying. But when I really have the time and energy, I love going, you know, over the top with the dinners and making like slow roasted, like low and slow doing things old school with the sauces and all of it. I really love to go that far. I'm going to have the energy. I am so like that. And part of this podcast, the idea of the seasoned RD, we are both in seasoned cast iron mm-hmm. skillets, mm-hmm. but that's the old fashioned way of, of cooking is the low and slow and long and whole ingredients and, and slow food, whatever. And the generations today tend to be more convenience or looking at the, you know, an app on their phone or something like that. Right. So mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with either of them, but for you, it's really satisfying to have that experience. Yes, I love it. I really do. Yeah. I'm actually holding the cookbook of my mom's. It's an encyclopedia mm-hmm. cookbook that is so, has so many spills and tears mm-hmm. and whatever on mm-hmm. it. It's, it's lovely. Yes. I love that. to so be able to tell which recipes are your favorite based on <laughs> how much stuff is exactly. on that Exactly. <laughs> it's paper. Yes. Which brings me to the next question of, you know, paper book or audio book? I really am a paper book person. I don't, I, it's harder for me to immerse myself in what I'm reading or doing through just audio. So I really love a paper book, but my friends have introduced me to the Kindle and eBooks over the last few months. And I do love the instant gratification of that, but I really need to be able to see something and hold it for me. Absolutely. Okay. So you are a PhD. I'm a PsyD, actually. You're a PsyD. Okay. Mm -hmm. PsyD therapist at a community mental health center. And I got to meet you through the Missouri Eating Disorders Council, which was a thrill for me because we connected right away. For newer professionals in the field who are just entering the field, and this, I believe, is your your polywig. I don't know if that's the right word, but really you work with a variety of mental health counselors at varying levels or stages. Anyways, I'm going to take you back to maybe an exam day for your PsyD or for any other kind of board exam and Mm -hmm. share with us the story of that day. You know, I, uh, I talked to my husband about this last night. I cannot remember so much of my exam day. You know, I remember walking into the building and taking the test. But for us, we did not get our scores that day. It took some time. So I don't even remember a lot of it because it never, it didn't feel like it was over. I remember more about my husband's exam day for some reason. Oh, well, tell us his. He says that this is his mode of studying, but he he's the guy that waits until a week or two before something like that and starts studying. So we waited until two weeks before the exam to start studying. And we were in the middle of a move at the same time. So it was just kind of this sense of chaos. But I think when I did mine, I even went to work after. Yeah. Just- I don't know why. 
but I, I remember going to work afterwards for some reason. I felt so sick to my stomach. I couldn't do anything. But anyway, you went to work. Well, yeah, I went to, like, I don't know if I was trying to just kind of walk it out and not think about it. Yeah. I was so anxious. I don't like taking tests. Was it, was it a computerized or was it? Yeah. It was computerized in one of those kind of general testing centers that you go to. And it was so quiet that everything felt loud Mm. and I could hear all of it. It was really hard to concentrate and go through and do all of those items. And so much on our exam are often things that aren't necessarily even taught in school. And there are small details. And then you get the eating disorder questions. And I find myself arguing between the answer that I know that they want and what I know to be true. Yeah. You know too much. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so you have we to get, answer it. Yeah, we get that answer a lot of like, oh my gosh, I know what the right answer is, but I know what they want me to say. Right. I remember in grad school taking a test and there were eating disorder questions on it. And I missed those questions. And I still think that I was, I think I even have the test. I think that, I still think that I was right on the answers, but my professor definitely disagreed. Uh Yeah, that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. So was there essays or something? Why didn't you get the results right then? If I remember correctly, they go through to our licensing board first. Got it. They go to us. There's definitely a delay or there was you know, that long ago. Okay. We did it. It was not, there was no immediate gratification there. Okay. Well, so PsyD and I made the mistake of PhD. So there's not much difference in the level of school, right? It's a difference in the focus. So the PsyD or the doctorate of psychology, it's more clinically based where the PhDs are a lot more research oriented where I landed with my own education was somewhere in between and ended up doing my own research and doing that work during grad school. So I think I landed somewhere in between. Yeah. So how did you get into the field of psychology and then eating disorders? It's interesting. I really don't get asked this question very often when people talk to me, it actually goes back really far. I mean, honestly, So I grew up in a legacy of women at war with their bodies and probably even themselves. And then, you know, going through my own journey in high school and just struggling as a lot of us do with kind of body image and those concerns. And my friends got worried about me. And so they made me read a lot about eating disorders they just kind of put it in front of me and made me read it and listen to it. And this was maybe halfway through high school. And I just knew in that moment that that's, that's what I needed to be doing. It was one of those things that it just clicked. Everything made sense. It's always made a lot of sense to me and come really naturally. So I've stayed really focused on it since high school. There was one year where I strayed to religious studies we have really fabulous professors for this at my undergrad. So I got distracted, but it's been there since I was a teenager. So probably literally Y2K, I think is when they sat, that sat me down in front of this and stayed with me yeah. on it. I think I got really lucky to have them 
Yeah, I was going to ask if you got irritated with them. I had a friend, a good friend in high school, and she would tell us, you all are just jealous. Mm. No, I, you know, and one of them is still in my life. We're still friends and we talk and I was really grateful. And even looking back at my story now, I see how much it shaped me. You know, one of my friends was, is, lives in a larger body. And I remember thinking about and learning about, she's just this incredible musician and always has been and uses her voice and getting to like watch her and experience that. And that kind of fierceness that she has was so influential for me. And I think that like, if it hadn't been for them, something different might've happened. I got really lucky. And I know that now. I was going to say what good friends you have. And I don't think that's what happened these days. I think that honestly, a lot of teens are like competing to be the quote unquote smallest. I can see that happening a lot. You know, if you find your good friends, like your people, then you have those connections, but it's part of why I so strongly believe in how powerful friends and family can be. Um, Cause I know that to be true but there's so many things that get in the way of that. I do think that I got really lucky. I did. I have to say when I circled that, I wrote down, find your people, because that's, Mm -hmm. that's an important piece for me personally and professionally. And so I do feel that way with you, Dr. Copeland, that we, we found each other through the Missouri Eating Disorders Council, but we're able to do some of the work that, that we're doing. So I would love for you to tell us what your passions are with, with your eating disorders work right now. You know, I think, you know, there's two part two parts of it. There's, I love radically open dialectical behavior therapy. It is, my favorite type of therapy to use. And we use a lot of it in our whole program, but I just love my program and my team. I think I, it's really easy for me to gush over them and how much I adore them and how powerful they are and how far they've come, because I think it's so important. We have this idea in mind of what this someone with an eating disorder looks like, you know, that skinny, white, affluent girl And sitting here in rural Missouri, working with folks that are low income, don't have insurance, that is not at all what we see here. It is so rare that we see someone that looks like that. And I think that it keeps people from getting treatment. People don't think that folks with, you know, no insurance are living in these areas. They don't think that they have eating disorders. We've been told by other providers that they're no big deal or it's just not possible. They get overlooked. And for me, that is so important because so, so many of our clients, so many people here just don't think that it would be an issue. I don't know. You were on the beginning of the council. I'm sorry to interrupt. I do want to interject this one piece that people on the council, whether they were from university settings or community Mm -hmm. mental health settings, or research settings, they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, we don't see eating disorders in the universities. Oh, no, we don't Mm -hmm. see them in rural areas. And we were like, it's because you're not asking the right questions. And it's because you Mm -hmm. have, like you said, the the bias about what eating disorders are. The questions don't get asked, whether people just don't know to, or we don't want to, or we all get busy. You know, community mental health is really busy. There's a lot of demands. Like we are often the primary caregivers in these areas. So there were 
there's never enough of us to go around. There's never enough time and there's always too much paperwork, but all these layers just get in the way and it's really dangerous. It's just dangerous and scary. And these people are quietly suffering. And I think it's important that we start talking about it so that they get that permission to, and start believing themselves that this is a problem. When I first came here, someone told me when I was interviewing, I still tease them about this, that they didn't think I would be happy here because they didn't think there would be enough people with eating disorders. Wow. And now, so you you said I could gush over my team and my, yeah. describe mm-hmm. your team and so where you've come with it. I've been with Ozark Center for six and a half years, but our team is Reconnect. It's our eating disorder program here. And we have a full comprehensive multidisciplinary team that uses every you know strength and opportunity that's available in community mental health centers. So we have our standard therapists and dietitians and a med provider, but here where there's additional resources and tools. So we have folks that are called community sports specialists. We call them reconnect coaches for us. Their typical job is really practical, connecting with resources, food stamps, Medicaid, things like that. But for us, they function as therapy extenders or really extenders for the dietitian as well. So these are folks that have been, they've been teaching intuitive eating to clients. They work through that principle by principle with our clients. They take skills and things that we're doing in therapy and they practice them with the clients, not just as accountability, but side by side. So they, we lose that kind of power differential that you usually have with your providers and they just walk alongside them. Sometimes they go to the grocery store with them because they can go out in the community. They can be in their homes and checking their cabinets and doing so many different things in a way that is more accessible and supportive. And it just opens a lot of doors for clients and helps us add an additional layer of support. And safety. What is their training for that? They're typically bachelor's level folks. One of the three of ours is currently working on his master's degree to become a social worker and do this work in the future. Yeah, one of the other ones is thinking about it. She's nervous, but thinking about it. Sure. And our third one has just been doing case management work in different places for a really long time. So she's got just this lived experience, wisdom, and really good intuition. I love um, it. So like when she, her spidey sense goes off, we trust it. Like uh-huh. we start looking for what is happening that we're missing. Nice. So we, their, their role is so fabulous. I It was something I fought in the beginning because I didn't understand it, but I don't know how we would function without them. Okay. So this is something that you've learned that you've brought on that you sort of resisted, but you can see the side by side and, and, and people really stepping up and, and how it's impacting your patient. It it is. They're really powerful. You know, we, uh, we did a webinar with them a couple of weeks ago and we used a case study and we talked to the client beforehand. And the one thing she really wanted us to share was how helpful it was for, for those case managers, for us to really show up as human with them um, and be in that kind of side-by-side role with them. It's they're experiencing it is really powerful. So it, it just really breaks through a lot of barriers that we may not otherwise have. 
I think that's such a good point to make and maybe something we forget is like showing up as a human, because especially in the eating disorder world, you know, your, your patients have a a psychiatrist, then they're seeing their therapist and then they're seeing you and then they're seeing their doctor. And so they're like constantly the patient or like the one that is, you know, ill. Right. And so it's nice to, for, I'm sure nice for them to understand, like, we're all human. We've all got our things. There's a lot of, you know, people talking at patients and getting to a place where we're with them and working alongside them, I think is really powerful trying to shift towards trusting them with their bodies and helping them learn to trust their bodies. And that's not something that I can talk at them. I am not an expert in their bodies. They're the ones that are living in it. They're experiencing this and feeling it. And the more that we can erase those kind of power differentials, the more the client is going to be able to do that and have that kind of empowerment. But we show up in all of our humanity and all of our mistakes that we make and own it. And I think that RODBT is like one of the things that's so powerful for that. And that's our role as a therapist. And we try to model that as much as possible with our clients. So when I make a mistake, I'm owning it. We're apologizing. We're talking about it and getting curious with it. One of my clients called me a name in session the other day to point out that I was kind of being rude to her. And she feels bad about it still later and told other clients about it in a group session. And I just keep stopping her and saying, but you were right. I was being rude. I was not listening that day. And I'm really glad that you said that to me because it snapped me out of it. Okay. For, for Abby and I, Mm -hmm. radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. RODBT. What is it? So there's two types of DBT and the difference is kind of functioning on that. There's different types of people. So traditional DBT is built for under control people. And so those are the people that are truly impulsive, wear their heart on their sleeves, you know, emotions coming out of them all of the time. They don't think things through, things like that. But RODBT is for all of us chronic perfectionists in the world, the people that like rules and routine and structure So some people think of us as control freaks. The reality is, is that it's a struggle to connect with people. There's a lot of social discomfort. There's disconnection in relationships. And so there's this overwhelming sense of just loneliness and disconnection. And it's underneath everything. And so there's really good data on this for eating disorders, but it's evidence-based for chronic depression and chronic anxiety you know, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, um, autism spectrum, it functions underneath all of the diagnoses. And we're working with, we call it social signaling, but it's basically how we show up in the world. And we work with that in the body and change that um, to change their connections and change how they're relating. And that is what makes the difference. And we tie all those pieces together. And there's some data that shows 70 to 80% of therapists are over-controlled too. So that's why I even say we do this because that is definitely me. And I share that with my clients. And that means that I'm also talking to them and showing them how I use skills and modeling how we do this. And what it's like. 
So that opening up and saying, allowing your client to, not allowing, but inviting them to give you a name to describe how they're experiencing what you were saying. Mm -hmm. And then so that they have a safe space to land. Yep. And celebrating that. Like I... I just get excited when they do those things. It is hard for them to use their voice. And we know this about so many people with eating disorders, right? That they don't feel like they have a voice. They don't know how to use it. They struggle with showing up as themselves in the world and knowing that they're valuable and worthy. And RODBT gives us a way of working with that without having to engage in an argument. Mm. We're not, you know, going after their thoughts or telling them that their thoughts are wrong because nobody wins when we try and fight with an eating disorder. Nobody wins that. So we bypass that whole struck, like the whole power struggle. And I'm just walking by their side Mm. in this. We're working with the body and through the body, which also means we're helping them reconnect with their body. And that helps with their recovery as well. Yeah. And their interpersonal skills. Like if somebody told me that I could be as open as I want, and Mm -hmm. I always ask, invite my clients to be like, you can't hurt me. You can't, and your words are important for me to Mm -hmm. know, regardless of where, how you think it's going to land with me, but to be able to just openly have that, that interpersonal interaction where they're worried, Mm -hmm. like you said, your client said that it doesn't feel so good, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's good practice. It is. Because think about that from like thin privilege and white stigma perspective, right? So I'm saying all of these things and doing all of this work in a thin body and that has meaning in the room. It has an impact. So for all of us to be able to be open about those things and talk about it with them, we're teaching them to be open and challenge it and talk about it as well. So when I have someone, a client that's fat or in a larger body, I'm displaying that openness, talking about how I know it's not about my body, but my body has meaning in the room. It's not me, but we're going to talk about it and it's going to be open. And it's been an invitation for some clients to say, yeah, I looked at you and thought, how do you know anything about this? Look at you. I'm so glad that you told me that. And I get excited about having those conversations. And that's Mm -hmm. part of what we do. It just gives us space to do yeah because we also can't predict what our clients are going to think about how our bodies show up in that space we that would be a is that counter transference transference i'm trying to remember (laughs) i always forget those terms yeah when it's one or the other but Mm -hmm. like projecting what we think they think about us right and so i you know trying not to assume anything but giving them an invitation and giving them permission and reminding them that it's completely normal when they have those reactions. Mm-hmm. That's from the eating disorder. Oh, I love that. Society. It's completely normal. It is. It's normal. So and normal. those conversations are, you know, the ones that we don't maybe always expect, but I feel like can make such big leaps and bounds, especially mm-hmm. because going off of what you're saying about thin privilege, our clients are going to be out in the real world around mm-hmm. other people with thin bodies. And so mm-hmm. it's a good, it's good for them to practice, you know, speaking on that and recognizing their feelings and emotions around it. Exactly. It is for the, cause then they can practice with us. They can practice with me and I can be that person. Cause I can hold that space. 
right? Like they can be mad at me and I will get excited. That's how it goes here. And they think, you know, displaying that openness with that from the get go is so important. You know, we had a client in a larger body. There was like a big difference between my body and hers and her coaches and hers. And we accidentally walked ourselves into a situation where the coach didn't recognize his thin privilege playing out in the room. And we had to kind of like backpedal to be able to heal that kind of rupture and that break there. But one of the things that she and I talked about is that because I am in a thin body, there's going to be things that may not even feel safe for you to talk to me about because there aren't. And there's so many things that might come up and I just wanted to be able to talk about them. So it's my job because I hold that power to name that in the room and not leave leave her sitting and wondering and then helping ensure that there are safe places for her to talk about those things. If it's not me, who's it going to be? Who do you feel safe? And she could tell me who else on the team she would feel okay if it came to that point. Yeah. You mentioned the backpedaling. What does that look like? Because I'm sure there are a lot of our listeners who maybe haven't recognized the thin privilege piece before. So how would you suggest going about that? What we did, it's apologies. It's lots of apologies. You know, I've done it. I've done it myself in other situations and not caught it and realized later, oh, that was my thin privilege. That's why I didn't catch it. And I wasn't seeing And coming back the next session and really apologizing, not letting them trying to make me feel better because you do need to feel something. I did something wrong and apologizing for it, naming it. And also, you know, saying something or showing how I am doing the work to try not to do that again in the future or what kind of adjustments I've made, you know, that real true apology that's also going to show up in my actions. Yeah. How do you get them to understand that they don't have to try to make you feel better? Because an apology almost invites a, oh, that's okay. Or trying to make you as the provider feel better. A lot of it is just telling them, you know, I I don't want you to make me feel better here. I know that I did something wrong and I want you to know that. And then I am sincerely sorry about that. And that it's okay for you to have feelings about it too. This isn't about me feeling better. I did something wrong. Mm. So it's really just blocking it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing that I would teach my clients, you know, because interpersonal things are so difficult, like reestablishing those connections is so difficult for them. And over-controlled people in ROTBT, we fight those connections so much that we have to learn how to apologize to be open and reveal when we're doing those things. And it includes being open about this is part of my growth and my process that I'm apologizing and they don't want you to make me feel better. Well, and then what do you do for the client that then says, well, I, okay, well, maybe I was overreacting. I mean, you don't have to apologize. It's, you know, it's me. I, for me, I try and validate like what they're not seeing. So, you know, when it's something where I stepped in it with thin privilege of validating, like this is something to be mad about. So one of the things that happened was using the word fat with a client and they were having a visceral reaction, but the coach wasn't seeing it. He couldn't see her face. So he couldn't see it. And she tried to say something to him about it, that she had this visceral reaction to this person in a thin body, just using that word that she wasn't ready to use yet. 
because we're all helpers and fixers. He went into a fix it mode with her. Right. And so we came back later. I had conversations with her talking about, no, nobody gets to decide what word you use to describe yourselves. These kinds of things are upsetting. It's okay to be angry and trying to give them again, permission to feel those things and then letting them sit with it also. So not, you know, pushing my agenda on them, but just giving them permission. And then mm. So if someone's just joining us and isn't aware of the words, then privilege, there's been a lot of like, wow, that person is standing on a pedestal and talking about all the privileges they have. And it does feel very hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know what it means, but I would love to hear in your words, how you help people understand what that means. The way that I talk about it, because weight stigma is something that people more understand. Fat phobia is something that more people understand because we know in this society, research has shown it time and again, that there is such a bias against people that are fat and in larger bodies. But the other side of that is that because I am in a thin body, a body that society says is acceptable, my life is easier if for no other reason than just because I'm thin. So it's easier for me to find a job. It's easier for me to get into school. It's easier for me to be in a happy, healthy relationship just by the fact of my body size that thin privilege that the world is easier by nothing that I did to earn it just because of my appearance and how I look. And that gives me power. Yeah. Nothing you did to earn it. And that's the, that's the piece. It's just like having Mm -hmm. light or dark skin or being a certain Mm -hmm. height or being a male Mm -hmm. or a female. That's nothing. It's, it's, it's a privilege that was not something that we earned. Exactly. And because I'm also like a, so I'm a thin white woman sitting Mm -hmm. in the room, that means something too. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's ways that my life is easier simply because of my body and my appearance. There's ways that my life is harder as a woman because I have to, like I'm facing sexism and things like that. But we do have these places where my life is easier and that's important to recognize. And for my clients, it's important to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. we're this is eating disorders. We're talking about bodies. Mm-hmm. That means that that means my body too. And talking about that and giving them a way to talk about it as well. And I think that plays such a huge role in eating disorders. Of course, there can be many root causes mm-hmm. or things that lead up to that, but the, our society and how we portray thin people on this pedestal, it makes sense that we have all of these disordered eating patterns. It's, if anything, it's almost like society teaches us to do that. Sometimes it's hard to ignore that factor. We know that biology and genetics play a role. There's growing data about gut health and how that plays a role. Trauma is important. All these things are important, but the context of our society and our culture, the environment that our clients are trying to recover in, we can't ignore that. And we bring it into the room. The more that we talk to them about those things, the more that we can help them with their recovery and be able to exist in this culture that is built to harm them or teach them that they're less than. And I think rural areas in particular are vulnerable to that. So if you look at CDC data, right, people talk about how there's higher rates of quote unquote obesity in these areas that people are larger in these areas. What that also means is that we get more messaging about weight loss and people shrinking their bodies. 
So we have more of that influence here, more of those interventions are around influencing them. Mm. We have to talk about it. It's a, it's a risk factor here, that culture, the internalized weight stigma that goes with that. We have to talk about it. That makes so much sense and something I never would have thought about before. But I mean, thinking about my little rural town in Missouri, it had to have been the same way. And I think, well, something I hear a lot from my patients going back into that thin privilege piece is, well, now that I lost X amount of weight, I have more friends. People want to date me, you know, like I'm having so much more success. So why can't I just keep being in this really small body? What do you say to that? I can't fight that. Of course. Like, right. Of course that they want to get into that body that is privileged by society. Of course they want those things. I want them to have an easier time with relationships. I want them to have those things. So I validate it. You know, of course they want those things. Why wouldn't you want those things? And we try to get curious with it, starting to tease out what comes from the eating disorder, what's in line with their values and the kind of person they want to be. Because we know when we really talk to them, the more they're in their eating disorder, I mean, how happy and healthy are those relationships really, right? And we have to talk about them as the quality where you want it to be. Are you being who you want to be? Are you living in line with your values? But in the end, we have to grieve the fact that this is the society that we live in. Those are the demands that are placed on us. And we have to grieve that we're not going to be in that privileged body. We have to go through and feel those things and, and make sure that they do to really find recovery. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, uh, that was such an awesome answer. And I'm envisioning myself taking that sound bite of what you just said and playing it for every single client of mine who thinks that their value is to lose weight or shrink their body or be a smaller size because we all have those clients too who we can look back they can look back at the pictures of when they were skinny or I'm saying this in air quotes right Right. now thinner lost half of their body weight or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be and how they could wear different clothes and they could you know like Abby said all of these positive things are happening and that is a product of our culture but also why wasn't it sustainable Mm-hmm. And so what, where do your values come in there? Well, it's because I was afraid I was going to make a mistake with my food at every single turn. Mm-hmm. And so I had to really be careful at every single meal, snack, whatever, that if I ate this certain food. Mm-hmm. So is that part of your value system to be, to take up so much brain space, mm-hmm. counting, weighing, and measuring food, your body, everything? Well, the headspace that it takes up, the emotional energy. When you're with someone, are you really present or are you in your head with your eating disorder? Mm-hmm. You know, but we can't, how do I get mad at somebody or get frustrated with somebody for something that's just a part of their eating disorder? Of course they want those things. There's a reason these eating disorders are there. And again, we don't get anywhere when we try to argue with it. We just don't because they're, they're fully convinced of those things and it makes sense for them. Their logic is sound from that eating disorder perspective. You can't argue with that. So we have to go these other routes. 
but also acknowledge the culture that we live in that is going to make them want those things. And we have to figure out the difference. I think this is one of the places social media is really powerful and podcasts and things like that, because we can expose them to a greater range of viewpoints and find different ways to get support. So especially, you know, on my team, we do have a pretty good range of body sizes, but there isn't, you know, a lot of, you know, fat positive community here, except for me and my team. And so finding these other places for them to hear this from other people that aren't just their doctor kind of telling them these things is also really powerful. Sometimes they have to hear it from more than just us. And I need them to hear it from other people that have that lived experience as well. The people that I learned these things from, because again, I am a thin person and I've not had these experiences, but I've benefited from the wisdom of people that have. Okay. So I want to get, I want to come back around to that, but before we get to that, I want to ask you both the question that I was asked this past week by a, a dietitian who said, is it wrong because they know people who weigh themselves every day, who don't appear to be in any kind of a disordered process? And is it wrong to weigh yourself every day? And, and my response was, do you take your temperature every day? Mm. Is that something that your body is in homeostasis on its own? And unless you have a problem with your temperature or your blood pressure or whatever, why would you take it every day? And they replied that, well, it helps them know how to eat. Mm. And again, that's, I'm just curious what your response might be to someone who says, what's wrong with There's nothing wrong. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with it. It is interesting. And I would get curious to use your word, Dr. Copeland, about the function of that. Yeah. What, how is it serving you? Like, what is it, what is it doing? You know, is it just about knowing how to eat or is it knowing how to feel and knowing what is going to be ahead of you for this day? Like, how does it impact you? What are we doing there? Mm, Interesting. Knowing how to eat versus knowing how to feel. Mm -hmm. And is that in line with their values? Like, do they want somebody else or something else that tells them how to think and tells them how to feel and how to eat and how to live in their bodies? Or would it be more in line with their values to get to a place of things like intuitive eating where we're trusting the body and we're trusting the body's wisdom. And that's not something that I can get from any number on the scale. You know, how many people feel like they have a fever and the thermometer says they're fine? You know, would we tell someone to go to a doctor, but they say that they don't have a fever, but they still don't feel good? Would we say, well, we'll just, we'll just go with what the doctor says, or are we going to want them to trust what their body is telling them and pursue that so that they can feel better? Great analogy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that I don't know how I would respond to that, but after hearing your answer, Dr. Copeland, I'm going to say that's also what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So kind of a wrap up question Mm -hmm. for you. If you could take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? You know, looking back at my career and through even just my education, there's so much of it that feels like a fight. 
of having to fight to be believed, fight to have people believe me that eating disorders are important, fight for the training that I needed. And I remember feeling just discouraged and mad and angry. And that's even how I got into doing weight stigma work. And I know that a lot of people, as women, we're taught we're not supposed to be mad. We're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to have those things. We're just supposed to, you know, be nice. And that, but really, anger is change energy if we let it. And I think that those things are important. Noticing the places where I got mad and not blaming myself but being able to look at what was going on around me and being able to put the blame, I think where it belongs, was it me or was it systems, you know, where looking back at where I got discouraged or where I started to doubt myself were coming from other people and them pushing back against me and trying to tell me that I didn't have value. I think you know, the things that I've learned over the last few years are not just to trust my intuition, but to trust my people, knowing my team and knowing the women that have been in my life that have supported me and pushed me. Those are the people whose opinions have value. And the other places are the places where change is needed. Mm-hmm. Being able to push through and persist through that. You know, we're sitting here, Reconnect is the first eating disorder program in a community mental health center in the nation that we are aware of. So that means this is the first time, the first place that someone with an eating disorder that doesn't have insurance or is underinsured is able to really get quality, evidence-based, compassionate treatment. Right before I came here, I was at another job, a job that was eliminated suddenly and without notice. And it felt like the world had been wrapped, like just ripped out from underneath me. But coming here and meeting my team and meeting my new boss, I knew that this was home and where I needed to be. And I let those people rob me of my voice for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You've taken that and turned it into a full-on training for all all who touch the lives of those with eating disorders. So earlier you had talked about exposing people to ways to get to to get support and that's what you're doing through your trainings and your program I think yeah there's two pieces to that you know the first is the reconnect team here and I just you know I could gush about them and and I often do none of this happened on my own none of this happened on my own and that's not just me trying to be humble and not taking the credit There's nothing that I have been able to do these last six years, nothing that we have accomplished that I could have done on my own. If I had had my way, I would have just created a traditional eating disorder program that just so happens to be in a community mental health center. And what we have is richer and more powerful because of this team. We came in with many different opinions. We had people really focused on weight loss and wanting to change bodies. And we've grown together and have a really clear philosophy about weight inclusivity and not pursuing those things now. That's not something that I could have done on my own. Mm -hmm. We're more powerful together. Mm -hmm. 
And that empowers us to do things too, like the Missouri Eating Disorders Council and our 360 training initiative. Those are things that we all do together to make sure that the story doesn't end here, to make sure that there are other teams that grow that are like us or better than us, like learn new lessons and we all learn and grow together, but to make sure that this population of people, rural area, food insecurity, internalized weight stigma, higher rates of trauma, or getting access to the life-saving treatment that they need. Wow. We haven't had a response to the last question like that, but I really liked it. So brought a, a good perspective for sure. If people wanted to reach out to you, if they had any questions, what, how would they do that? And then also you mentioned that you try to connect people to podcasts. Do you have any good podcasts you would recommend? I have a whole list that I give people for our clients and for different professionals. I like for clients, you know, Christy Harrison's Boots Like Podcast is so great because again, I love how people show up in their humanity and they're talking about their stories and learning. One of my coaches found one, I think it's called She's All Fat, the Fat Positive Podcast that we found the other day that's really wonderful. And I also like Opal Food and Bodies podcast, The Appetite. They talk a lot about ROTVT and some of their podcasts. They practice skills on there. They're talking to all sorts of people. But when it comes to professionals, I recommend those too, so that you can hear people's stories and understand the lived experience. But then we have great resources like your guys' podcast and being able to learn. I was entranced by Dr. Gaudiani's episode and listening to that a couple weeks ago, just talking to my car as I was driving to and from work, listening to that because I loved that perspective and trusting people with their bodies, you know, hearing those things and getting to hear hear and learn in all these different ways. Podcasts are really powerful for that. I mean, just a variety of different ways to learn. That's why they're even, they're included in our curriculum for the 360 training initiative. We have podcasts, we have books, we have webinars, and we have reflection questions and things like that so that we come at it from every angle in our whole bodies. Yeah. And the the two that, that were not professional, that were more consumer oriented mm-hmm. for our listeners, that's something that they can also share with their clients. And yes. then as we were recording this, I got mm-hmm. a text from a therapist who said, just want you to know again, how much I love your podcast. It mm-hmm. revives me. I feel so grounded when I listen mm-hmm. to it, starts my days mm-hmm. in the best of day. And I'm thankful. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you said Dr. Gaudiani, Abby and I, you all couldn't see this, but we're raising, <laughs> we're clapping. Yeah. We're like, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. another one that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And we had a Thanksgiving day mm-hmm. one that just came out that just was with a doctor and a dietitian. So it's those ways of having your people, of connecting with your having people, your people and the community, finding ways to do that. Because, you know, those of us that are in rural areas or even just in Missouri, because there doesn't, there's not a lot of us in Missouri doing this work, right? So we have to find ways to still be okay. This work is hard mm-hmm. and having your people is so important for that. It's so important. This work is hard. Having your people is so important. And Dr. Mm Jenny Copeland, you are one of our people. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks to the Missouri Eating Disorders Council for supporting your time on our podcast today. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. 
If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.